everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Janssens. Our guest today is Mark Higgins and co-founder of Beacon, an end-to-end development platform for financial markets that allows traders and quants to build and share code and applications across the front and back office. Mark is a veteran of the finance industry and a true technologist with a PhD in astrophysics. Before co-founding Beacon with Kirat Singh in 2014, Mark spent eight years at JP Morgan, launching and developing the Athena project, a cross-asset trading and risk platform, and co-heading quantitative research group for the investment bank. Prior to JP Morgan, he spent eight years at Goldman Sachs as a desk strategist on the foreign exchange at interest rate desks, where he worked on Goldman's legendary securities database. In today's episode, we cover topics such as the edge provided by Goldman SecDB and how it affected their outcomes during the financial crisis, the application of AI and neural nets in modern hedging, whether finance and fintech are still appealing for today's PhD graduates, as well as Mark's love of backgammon. Hi, Mark, and welcome to the podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Hey, thanks for so much for having me on. Big fan of the podcast. Um, uh, I'm calling from the Upper West Side of Manhattan uh, from my from my home office. Though, so, you know, our our Beacon office is is downtown Manhattan in the Financial District, in a sort of like you know funny coincidence, like a block from 85 Broad Street, which is where you know I started my Wall Street career at Goldman. Awesome, and well. For those of you who aren't quite as familiar, could you give us a brief overview of your career to date and how you came to be involved in FinTech and specifically how you came to found Beacon? Yeah, so um, so I came out of physics, like a lot of quants. I'm a quant. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I finished uh, grad school in the mid-90s, which is right when the derivatives markets were really exploding and Wall Street was like, we need, you know, physicists and engineers. And so, you know, kind of got sucked into Wall Street from that. You know, had a, uh, my first job was actually working uh, for uh, uh, a power utility uh, for a little a little fintech company, building and trading a risk system for them right as the U.S. power markets were deregulating. But after a couple of years of that, I moved to New York and joined Goldman, uh, where I started as a quant on the foreign exchange trading desk, uh, which is where I met my Beacon co-founder, uh, Kirat Singh. Uh, so he was he joined like a year before me. And both of us were working in this system called SecDB, uh, which you know some people might have heard of. It's it's like a really cool uh, technology platform that Goldman built, you know, initially for their FX and commodities businesses in the early '90s, and since sort of expanded to use across all their trading businesses, which is pretty unusual for uh, for bank technology stuff to have the same thing everywhere. But you know, we we kind of grew up in uh, at Goldman and in the SecDB platform. Which is a really interesting combination of uh, like a mostly kind of derivatives focused uh, trading and risk management system. So the system where like when you do trades with people, you book them, and then you can see all the portfolio of stuff that you have and see how much money you make or lose in different market scenarios and see how much money you make every day or lose every day and where it's split into and stuff like that. So it was kind of like the system. And then they had this development platform that was part of the system, which is where all of us would actually write all of our code. And it was cool because it was part of the production system. So all the data was there that we needed, like all the trades and positions and market data and reference data and everything. It was already in there. And so when you're doing testing, it's just way easier to do at scale. You can run it, you know, big parallel calculations. Has all this kind of nice enterprise technology functionality, which is good because people like me, I'm a quant. You know, there's developers like us, you know, quants, data scientists, financial engineers, front office developers, whatever you want to call us. 
And we typically don't know very much about enterprise technology, right? Like how do you actually organize systems at this massive scale and have it all work and run on the right infrastructure and not break all the time? We didn't really know anything about that stuff. Um, we were just like solving problems as they came up on the desk using whatever tools we had. And it turned out that the tool we had was SecDB, which made it really easy to do this stuff and made us really kind of, you know, productive and efficient and part, you know, close to the business when we did it. So it was kind of the environment we grew up in. Uh, and we spent uh, like eight or nine years there. And then Kirat and I moved together to JP Morgan uh, in 2006 when we started uh, Athena, which is sort of like version two of uh, of an architecture like SecDB. But we had the advantage of hindsight, like we saw all the things that we did wrong, you know, when we did it the first time uh, and, and kind of fixed it up and modernized a lot of the technology. Uh, and did that four years together at JP Morgan. And then Kirat went to Bank of America and started Quartz, which is like the third version of this thing. But I stayed at JP Morgan and uh, ended up co-heading the quant group for uh, the investment bank for a couple of years. So like running that quant team and then moved into a, uh, a trading job for a couple of years, um, uh, managing the electronic market making business for currency options. Realized I wasn't a particularly good trader, as it turned out. Uh, but fortunately, Kirat then left Bank of America and we were catching up over a beer as we often did. And uh, we were like, you know, we've done this thing three times now. Maybe we should just make a company to do it. And that's kind of where Beacon came from. So it's this, you know, progression initially with SecDB at Goldman, where we kind of learned this architectural model and why why it was good for the business. And then like built it again at JP Morgan and built it again at Bank of America. And then, you know, our final time, hopefully, uh, Ed is, uh, is building it at Beacon. Third time's a charm. In your own words, then, how does Beacon's kind of product environment allow financial institutions and quants to scale their businesses kind of across a single platform? So, you know, I mentioned how it has this development platform, SecDB. Let's just st stick with SecDB for a minute, but the same things apply to like Athena and Quartz and Beacon. But the the good thing about it is that it has all this enterprise technology stuff in it as a developer, right? And like great trading and risk applications, but lots of places have great trading and risk applications. I think the thing that really set uh, SecDB apart as a technology platform is that it lets people like me, the quants and data scientists and people who don't know enterprise technology, it gives us the enterprise technology tools so we can actually be fully fledged production developers, like peers with the, our friends in the technology department who are good at enterprise technology, right? The alternative is what a lot of places do. There's sort of two alternatives. One is the horrible trap of spreadsheets you know like someone on the desk has asked you to do something and you're going to do it somehow and if you don't have the tools probably just do it in a spreadsheet or maybe one guy downloads python and another person builds stuff in c plus plus and another one does it in r or something whatever and all those things like solve these little point business problems when they come up but then three years later you've got hundreds of these little disconnected point solutions and everything kind of grinds to a halt right so that's sort of like the spreadsheet trap that sometimes people fall into more often what happens is they're like, we don't want to do that spreadsheet trap thing. Quants, you don't know really how to touch production. So your job is just to build an analytics library. And then you hand it off to your friends in technology who do the enterprise technology bits. They like plumb it into applications and deploy it to production and all that stuff. So that model works. That's like the more common model on, on the street. But it's not very efficient because, you know, the quants have outsourced the most important thing any developer can do, which is deploy your stuff to production, right? Like, no trader cares about what you're doing in your R&D environment. They just want to get their hands on it so they can actually use it to make money. And the quants have outsourced that most important step to another group. So they're often kind of frustrated that their stuff doesn't get out 
And, you know, the quants and tech people don't quite speak the same language. So all this like bureaucracy accrues at the boundary between the teams and the quants have this tech route kind of between them and the business or kind of pushes them away from the business a bit. So it works, but it's just not very good. And the SecDB model, you know, uh, allows for like a better organizational model for all those people where because they have this enterprise technology tools in the platform that forces them to build stuff the right way, they can kind of be peers of the technology people and not in each other's way. So that was like the the real sort of secret sauce with SecDB. And what it meant was as a business, they could just be faster than everyone else, right? Like if a new financial product came up, they could just roll it out faster end to end so they could really, you know, structure it and, you know, work with the clients on it and book the trade and manage risk on it and deal with all the operational gunk that happens to it over its life. They could do that faster than everyone else. And, you know, if there was a market crisis and all the models broke because the skew got too steep or something like that, they could just jump in there and like do hot fixes in the moment. Um, or if there's new ways of thinking about risk or, you know, PL attribution or something, they could just jump in there and build it faster than everyone else. So it just let Goldman be faster as a business than, than most of its competitors. And that's kind of the value proposition for Beacon, right? So, you know, we again, like we did, we grew up in SecDB, did it with Athena, did it with Quartz. And now Beacon is meant to be sort of like a vendor version of that thing. Amazing. And I guess one thing I'd love to ask you is kind of did your early experiences kind of, you know, the sole quant on a commodities desk, building a lot of internal risk tools yourself, like how did that affect the environment that you've, you've ended up building at Beacon with Karat? I mean, the, the so my first job before I was at Goldman, I was the only developer at, you know, Contango Energy, uh, this little fintech that was building a trading system for, uh, for Virginia Power, um, a utility that was building its trading desk. And it was just like being chucked into the deep end. Like there's no, first of all, it was a brand new trading desk with people who didn't know what they were, people who were like engineers in the power plant or whatever. And they were like, yeah, maybe I'll be a trader. And uh, and so they didn't really know what they were doing. And I didn't, certainly didn't know what I was doing. I just got out of a physics degree. And so we had to kind of figure it all out on the spot, which was a great learning experience, you know, for me. And the other thing that was really interesting about it was seeing like a new market sort of coalesce and develop and then like they had their own like initial market crisis where, you know, power prices, which normally were like $30 a megawatt hour, you know, some power plant unexpectedly went out, uh, offline when there was a heat wave and power prices went to like $3,000 and half the, uh, you know, half the participants in the market were these little hedge funds called that called themselves power marketers. They didn't even know that there was a thing called hedge funds. They just called themselves power marketers. And there was no, no one had ever heard of credit risk or anything like that. And so half those guys made a ton of money when power prices went from thirty to three thousand dollars, and half of them just went bankrupt. And the market was like, "Oh my God, we don't know what we're doing." And the whole thing kind of collapsed again. And they moved back to trading. You know, they'd been coming up with all sorts of cool structured derivatives and things, and they just like sucked it all back and you know focused on on just understanding their basic market again. So it was a really neat learning experience to sort of see how. Uh, you know, markets evolve as well. Amazing. And uh, I'm sure it was very informative as you moved on to SecDB, yeah. Athena, and so on. One thing I'd love to kind of talk about now is just because, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about Goldman SecDB already, and I think it's it's fairly legendary in some circles. You know, I think a lot of people will credit Goldman's ability to calculate their own risk exposure kind of in the financial crisis is one of the reasons they probably came out a little bit more unscathed than perhaps some other players in the market. Um, how much do you think SecDB specifically was to do with that versus just broader, you know, risk policies in place at Goldman and so on? I, th I think it was almost entirely SecDB. 
you know, for two main reasons. The first was kind of a lucky reason, which was they use SecDB on all their trading desks. And so if they wanted to see like their positions against Lehman, they just go to like the Lehman book and look at it. It's already there. They already have all their positions, whereas other places had to sort of, you know, they weren't used to thinking about risk in a cross business sense. And so every business had their own system. And so if they wanted to see all their positions against Lehman, it might take them a couple of weeks to like suck everything out and add it all up in a horrible pile of spreadsheets. So Goldman already had this sort of like cross desk risk view of, of, of all the positions they have with clients just sort of accidentally, right? Like it wasn't like they were like, you know what we're going to do strategically? We're going to have this one system and roll it out across all the businesses. It was more like the it started in J. Aaron, uh, the FX and commodities trading business. And then in the late 90s, the J. Aaron people just like assembled an army and went and like slaughtered everyone else across the entire company and took over everything. And they kind of carried SecDB along with them, which is a great experience for us, by the way. Like Kirat and I were there as this was happening. And so we got to... Unlike most developers, we got to, you know, who get kind of pigeonholed in one business, we got carried into a whole bunch of businesses as, as this, you know, army was marching across the, the, the continent, you know, and, and taking over everything. And, uh, uh, but, you know, so through the sort of political accident of JR and people just, you know, winning all the battles and taking over everything, SecDB got plugged in everywhere. Um, and so by the time the credit crisis happened, that had already finished and SecDB had this one technology for everything. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is more kind of like specific to what SecDB does, which is in a market crisis, like all sorts of things are changing. The like assumptions are breaking that you didn't even necessarily realize you made. Like, you know, the spread between the Fed funds interest rate and the LIBOR interest rate was always like between one and three basis points and it hardly ever moved before the credit crisis. And then in the credit crisis, it went to like 400 basis points. All of a sudden, this gigantic new source of risk that you didn't even really think of that you had uh, all of a sudden was a really important source of risk. And SecDB, because it has this really flexible development framework kind of built into it, it meant that the business could respond to that kind of stuff fast as well. And it's kind of stay ahead of, of, of that sort of risk. Fantastic. And, um, you know, notoriously, some other banks were still calculating counterparty exposure for kind of months after the, yes, <laughs> the events. Exactly. Um, do you think that a broader implementation of systems like Vena, SecDB, Beacon, for instance, would actually fortify the financial system, you know, against future crashes and shocks. Maybe not, you know, get rid of them, but. Maybe. I mean, like in the, in the sense that we talked about where if you have one system that has everything in it, it's easier to get a sort of comprehensive global view of things. Yeah. But, you know, the, the root of the financial crisis was people searching for yield and just, you know, with gigantic, you know, truckloads of money behind them, just like squishing it into the machine, trying to, you know, get a few extra, you know, um, tens of basis points out. And it ended up flowing into subprime and then building like that, that gigantic, um, uh, you know, um, CDO market on top of subprime that scaled it up by a factor of 300 or whatever, like that sort of incentive, I think is hard to erase from the financial system in general. And so like, I don't know if, you know, technology platforms are going to solve that part. I, I remember hearing it described often as picking pennies up in front of a steamroller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so moving on a little bit to just be focused a little more on Beacon specifically. Yeah. Obviously, um, you've been there for the last quite a few years now. Eight and a um, half, yeah. 
What do you think are the kind of some of the key features of Beacon that differentiate it from something that an in-house team might end up building um, to meet their own needs? I know I've heard people describe kind of like native time series stuff as very important, but curious to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know when when Kirat and I started on Wall Street in the late nineties, um, this was all kind of new, right? And it made sense for institutions to build all their stuff internally because they could just hire the best people, and there wasn't sort of a commoditized version of the best way to do things that was already out there. So everyone kind of figured it out for themselves and built it all internally, um, which is you know which is what we did. But we're not really there anymore. Now we're in a position where you know uh, if a bank wants to use the cloud, for example. It's hard for them to figure out how to do it the right way. Their technology infrastructure team um, is used to like on-premise data center kind of compute models, which are qualitatively different than the elastic compute model in the cloud. And it's hard for them sometimes to kind of make the metaphor shift to, to get there. And even if they do, there's so many ways to do it wrong. And we've already at Beacon, we already figured out all those things. Like we already made like, you know, a sort of good commoditized version of things like that. And there's lots of things like that, whether it's sort of the underlying technology or if it's things like how do you build a yield curve or or interpolate an implied volatility or represent an FX knockout option or something. So we already have all that stuff kind of in the box. So financial institutions can just buy it and then focus on the stuff that's specific to their business, like their secret sauce without having to spend years and years building that foundation and making a bunch of the mistakes that we already made over the last 25 years and and you know know how not to make now. Amazing. And and you know, obviously Beacon's been implemented in quite a few places. What are some of the most interesting applications of Beacon that you've seen yourself? You know, I think uh uh, an interesting one is, is kind of like an R&D thing now, but uh, but I think is just fascinating is this thing called deep hedging. So the uh, deep hedging is not something we came up with. It's, you know, research published about four years ago by uh, some quants at JP Morgan and some some of their friends in academia. And it kind of really looks at the the core sort of modeling foundation of derivatives pricing and this completely rethinks it, right? We've had this paradigm called risk-neutral pricing which is sort of like the modeling foundation that's for 50 years undergirded all the derivative stuff that people have done works well, but it makes a bunch of assumptions that it like, you know, it seems that when you hedge, there's no transaction costs and you can hedge all your risks away. There aren't any left over that you can't hedge. And, you know, every time the market ticks, you go and rebalance your hedges and people, you know, for a lot of markets, that's an okay approximation, but for less liquid markets, like if you're uh you know, a commodity company, and you've you've got the right to run a power plant, and you're sort of dynamically hedging the power, and maybe it's a gas-fired power plant, you're hedging your gas risk and your power risk. Those are like kind of a liquid markets with big bid-ask spreads. You're not rebalancing your hedges very often. There's a, you know, your power plant might just break and go offline. There's risks that you can't hedge. And so for stuff like that, um, risk-neutral pricing just doesn't work very well. And so the idea with deep hedging is to say, well, Instead of like doing all this sort of risk neutral gunk, we're just going to train a neural net to figure out the best hedges for your derivatives portfolio. And in the limit where all those risk neutral assumptions apply, then the best hedges are the risk neutral hedges. And so it reproduces all the stuff that we've traditionally done, but then it sort of generalizes to the space where, where risk neutral pricing doesn't work. So it's, it's a really, I think, exciting technique for those markets for, you know, like life insurance where They'll sell these long-dated variable annuities that look like long-dated equity options that are contingent on people dying. 
And so they have to hedge it with elongated equity options where that market doesn't have much liquidity and sort of the long expirations. Uh, and they run into those same kind of problems or in, you know, uh, credit markets, uh, you know, credit markets also uh, have a lot of sort of unhedgeable risk built in, a lot of illiquid underlying risks. So we think there's there's a lot of really exciting opportunities for this. Um, still relatively early days, uh, but, you know, we're working with uh, with some partners to, to try and flesh that out. Amazing. And so I'll change tack here a little bit and ask you kind of more about kind of your early career and, and how you think it applies today. So do you still believe that finance and specifically quant finance is an appealing career for those leaving more quantitative PhD programs like, you know, in your case, theoretical astrophysics, perhaps statistics or something more similar? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that really attracted me to the field and, you know, this sort of accident, I didn't know that I didn't even know that quantitative finance existed when I was doing my my physics PhD. But, you know, like physics is is exciting and intellectually interesting, but it's slow. Like, you know, you work on something for months or years and you publish some papers and there are six people in the world who know what your thing is. And, you know, you go to a conference and over another year present it and stuff on a trading desk, things happen like right away. So, you know, you you have an idea and you push it out and someone looks at it and is like, that's awesome. Or more often, that is crap. And you get feedback right away on what works. And, and so it really helps you, uh, you know, sort of prioritize what to focus on. But it's also just a really fun, fast paced environment to work in. Um, so I, I and and also it's got some really meaty intellectual problems in it as well. Like it's the math is not trivial stuff. Like it's meaty stuff that's that's exciting to do and the computational problems are difficult and tricky and massive in scale so there's just lots of really neat fun problems in it for people who come from a, a sort of numerate background whether it's engineering or physics or statistics or whatever amazing and and i think you know i've heard you speak on other podcasts as well as kind of as to the trading uh, sorry the changing roles of traders over the years um you know obviously things have become much more automated in the past 10 i mean since you began much more yeah. so and even in the last 10 years so kind of as you as you reflect on your own career and obviously working very closely with a lot of trading desks can you share how the role of a trader has changed kind of since you began your career as a commodities and fx trader and kind of what you seeing nowadays as, as you're quite you know keeping your pulse on the market yeah and I, I think this is sort of one of the the waves that we ride as beacon in terms of building tools for quants because the role of quants and technologists has has you know sort of dramatically changed for a lot of these big um, uh, trading businesses like you know when i started on goldman's foreign exchange desk in 98 the regular fx trading you know if you're just trading euro versus dollar spot trading or something like that that was a, a voice trading business. So a client would like call a salesperson on the phone and ask for a price on something. The salesperson would stand up and yell across the floor to the trader who would like manually figure out what prices to make for that client and yell it back across the floor and then do the trade. They didn't do that many trades, you know, maybe it was a couple an hour or something like that. And so they could, and their risk was really simple. Like if you're trading euro versus dollar, your risk is just like, how many euros am I net long or short? You can just keep track of that on a napkin if you want, if you're doing a couple of trades an hour, right? So they really had no use for technologists or quants or anything, right? And they the spreads were big and fat and they made lots of money and it was an amazing, amazing business. Then over like 15 years, you know, say by 2015 or so, that market had moved almost entirely electronic, which means 
that workflow where like a client would pick up the phone and make a phone call. Instead, they have an app on their desktop where they, you know, if they want to trade like 10 million euros or dollars, they tape like 10 into the euro dollar box and it shows them streaming bid and ask prices and they can click on the bid to sell to the bid or click on the offer to, you know, sell uh, to buy at the offer. And all the machinery behind that on the bank side, whether it's like the thing that makes the prices or the thing that hedges the risk is all computer programs now, whereas it used to be humans doing that stuff. So the business has gone from being one where quants and technologists really weren't in, involved almost at all to one where it is the business. You know, um, one of the quants that I grew up with at Goldman from my early days on the foreign exchange desk, Eddie Wen, is now running like all the digital markets businesses at Goldman. Like he's running the business. He's not running the quant group there. The business guy is a quant now. And I think that that really is sort of uh, showcases this this qualitative change we're seeing in all sorts of places across financial markets, where they're getting you know more and more automated, higher speed, higher volume of trades, more um, transparent markets with light, smaller bid ask spreads, where you can't just as a market maker like buy at the bid and sell at the offer anymore. You just don't make money doing that. You have to be smarter about how you approach it, and that ends up falling into the sort of quantum tech space. Fantastic. And, you know, even among my own colleagues and friends, I've seen, you know, good buddy of mine used to trade IG credit at uh, at Goldman and, and even within kind of what I would describe as kind of often viewed as like the far horizon of like automation of, of credit and, you know, those yeah. more nuanced markets. You're starting to see that more and more nowadays. And and how, and that, that kind of brings you onto a point that I'm always curious about is like when you're looking at a multi-asset portfolio, how can a tool like Beacon help you hedge, arrange your bets and risk when you're dealing with such drastically different timelines and often very nuanced assets? Yeah, I mean, I think you just need a, a flexible environment that can handle all those markets, first of all, right? The first thing is like, can I just like book my trades the right, and, and capture all their characteristics the right way and see risks to the market factors that they're exposed to? That's kind of the first thing. And that's, you know, Beacon's really good at that. So we have, you know, support for kind of all the, the main markets, this out of the box. I think there's also, you know, when you get into this sort of spread between like high frequency flow trading to, you know, infrequent structured exotic derivatives market making, the 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 sort of span of technologies that you have to use across that range is is really super broad. And, you know, I think one advantage that that Kirat and I have had and a lot of the people who work at Beacon is that we've seen like all those corners of the business and been there as this, this transition to electronic trading has happened and seen what worked and what mistakes people made and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. And, you know, looking more specifically at Beacon, um, you know, the, the company has been around for a little while now. If you if you had, you know, everything goes right and you're looking five years into the future, kind of what does Beacon look like and how does it change from today to perhaps five years in the future? I always like having an analogy to do with um, uh, Bloomberg, right? So if you're a trader, you're definitely going to get Bloomberg. Like it's better than all the other stuff. Everyone gets Bloomberg. Of course you get Bloomberg, right? That's what we want Beacon to be for developers. It's just like a better tool for being a developer if you're working on a trading desk. It makes it easier to do your job and be more plugged into the business and deliver stuff better. And so we want Beacon just to be sort of the operating system of finance where you know developers just want to use it because it's the best tool available. Amazing. And uh, another question we always love to ask, I guess, is, you know, what are some of the, you know, you're, you're a veteran of both the, the finance world and the fintech world at this point. 
what are some some of those hard lessons that you've you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with our listenership? Because you know, not everyone is coming from as many years in, in both worlds as you are. You know, I think the the trickiest one was you know. So we're what we're selling is uh, like a trading and risk system and the development platform where our clients developers build all their stuff, right? And when we started, it was just like me and Kira. There was just two of us and like a couple of consultants who helped us out and stuff. And one thing I didn't properly appreciate is how hard it would be to convince people to, to like sign up for a license agreement when it's just like a couple people. We're like, take all your developers and have them use this thing written by a couple of people who don't have any money or whatever in a company that was just formed six months ago. So, you know, we were fortunate, I think, to um, get our first big clients, uh, Global Atlantic. Um, which used to be like Goldman's New York reinsurance business. And they spun it off as a separate company and turned it into a life insurance company. And uh, they were trying to get off of SecDB. They had like the right to use SecDB for the first two years or whatever, and then had to get off. And so our first actual, you know, big job was consulting with Global Atlantic to help them project manage that transition. And we were like, and, you know, you've got all these, you know, quants who and developers who, are used to working in SecDB. We're building a thing like that. I'm sure they'd really like it. Do you want to buy it? And the guy in charge of the business was nice enough to say, yeah, I, I guess, you know, we'll see. But I, I think so, but we'll see. Um, and uh, and then they, uh, you know, signed our first big enterprise license agreement. So I just want to give a shout out to, you know, our friends at Global Atlantic who have been amazing partners. They're investors in the company. And, uh, uh, you know, for, for, you know, the, you know, almost since the very beginning of our company, but I think if we hadn't had that first big enterprise deal where someone took a punt on us, it would have been a lot harder to kind of get going with this big enterprise technology product that we have. That's definitely a consistent theme we've heard from fintech founders, especially yeah. in the in the more B two B enterprise space. That hunting for that first customer can be can be a very nerve wracking period of time as well, exactly. especially when you put poured as much into the R and D as you guys have. Speaking of that, I'm sure there's not a lot of developers going around. Uh, coding in slang nowadays so I'm sure it must have been pretty tough to <laughs> no, know I think there's tons and tons of like at Goldman they still use slang all over the place I don't know how many hundreds of millions of lines of slang there are but like you know that order of magnitude amazing that's true actually you know plenty of code is coming out from that yeah um and finally before we let you go one thing we always have to ask everyone is just what do you like to do outside of your work at Beacon what kind of keeps you sane as you're kind of you know not working on the business you know, uh, uh, one of my big hobbies is backgammon, um, which people always sort of look askew at. But uh, but it's, I just think it's such a, a fun, mathematically challenging game uh, that that you know has it's kind of like poker in that you're always sort of evaluating you know the best thing to do, which varies a lot between different states of the game. Uh, and it's got this nice mix of luck and skill, so that like an expert can play a beginner on one game of backgammon and maybe the beginner wins you know probably not if they play like a whole bunch of games together but like uh you know there, there's still that kind of luck element that you know gives that gives it that sort of gambling flavor so uh uh i i love it so that's that's i spend a fair bit of my time doing backgammon stuff that's great i uh i'm a big brazilian jiu-jitsu enthusiast and ah, cool. the, the two the two games that you see around the gym are chess and backgammon so i'm, <laughs> I'm sympathetic to that that's right well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, Mark. Um, you know, we'd love to have you again sometime and and wish you all the best for all your uh, for your future endeavors with Beacon. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, like I said, I'm a fan of the podcast, so, you know, really excited to be on and thanks for having me. 
thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you love our show, please write a review or engage with us on social media. We greatly appreciate your support and it helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you'll be able to access interviews, articles, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, a very special thank you to our editor, Rafael Ostria. Until next time, your host, Andrew Janssens.